struck me how worship has never changed. That it's old and that it's brand new. This was a vision given to John 2,000 years ago. And the definition of worship simply is this, God speaks and we listen. And if you think about it, that's just what we heard, right? There were voices coming from the throne. There were voices going back to God. God speaks, we listen, and then we sing his praises. That's exactly what we did today, right? It's exactly what we did today. When our hymn was composed by William Cowper a hundred and something years ago and published, was it brand new? In a way. But it wasn't because he used notes that were never heard. I bet Beverly and Kevin can tell us that those notes certainly aren't new or unique or original, not even probably in the ways that they're arranged. You can probably find a tune or a melody that sounds a little bit like it. But what makes that hymn new is that it is about a fountain of blood that washes away sin and gives eternal life. So it's 2,000 years old and it's brand new. But what makes worship brand new, what makes it new every morning is the message, the gospel itself. For 2,000 years, the church has been preaching the gospel. We claim that we have some good news for the world, don't we? We've got some good news for the world. And, and it comes from worshiping this God every day, every Sabbath, old and new for 2,000 years. But I bet we can imagine some times when the church uh, did great on preaching that gospel and then there were times that the church did not so well in preaching that gospel. Is that there is a, a true way, there's a real way to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, and also there is a false one, is there not? And in the 2,000 years of the history of the church and probably looking into the future, there will always be these false versions. And one of them is the difference between what power is, how the true gospel defines power, and how the true gospel uses power, as opposed to the fallen kingdoms we live in, and how they define power, and how they use power. Have there been earthly kingdoms claimed to have been set up based on religious power from God. Sure there has, hasn't there? And there will be more. I started this whole thing by trying to tune in on at least the first time that this, uh, say, religious kingdom was ever established, and, and it is used as an example of a, uh, of a pinnacle of, of, of what a kingdom should look like. Remember? See, I told you you wouldn't remember. It's been three weeks. I know, it's tough. But when you talk about the pinnacle of, of Israel, uh, they, they, we're always told that the pinnacle of all Israel, what God really had in mind for Israel, was achieved during Solomon's time. How many have heard that? How many believe that? I used to. I used to until I heard what the king had to say about that kingdom. And that's what I shared with you last time. Remember, the, what the king said about that kingdom was, um, 
I don't know if we're going to have trouble with this. He said, I, the teacher, win king over Israel. So this is Solomon himself speaking about that team. I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, and it is what? It's an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. And when you're talking about that mind, you're talking about a mind that was given to him by God. He was given wisdom beyond imagine because that's what he asked for. He felt that he was falling short of what his father David would have had in mind and he, was, he, was, he didn't know where to go and he asked God for wisdom and he had unparalleled wisdom. And that's why we think that this is the most blessed time. It, it led to unparalleled prosperity. It had great innovative ideas, the wealth and the power to make them all a reality, the Milo, the temple, his palace. But in the midst of all that, the temple itself sits. And so if you think about it, the government uh, that happens in the palace, the government that bleeds over into the temple, it was all mixed up, if you will, in these, in these teachings. And Solomon's wealth and his wisdom became through Israel's history its finest hour. Israel lives vicariously through the king's success, whether or not they have a taste of that success. Many modern commentaries see Solomon's reign this way. Every time in the year when I'm going through First and Second Kings, every commentary says, this was it. This was what we all want to achieve. This is what we all want. And I used to believe that until I read Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is Solomon's comment on that kingdom and what he accomplished or really what he didn't accomplish. You want to help me with that? <laughs> You're going to have to advance slides for me, Gilbert, today. So. And what he didn't accomplish was this. He said, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done before. He didn't see his kingdom as a pinnacle. He saw it as only the failures of everything that came before. Madness, folly, wisdom. It was all vanity and a chasing after the what, he said. A chasing after the wind. Because he said it couldn't be stopped. It can't be combated. Not with wisdom, not with willpower, not with all human greatness, not with all human strength. With all the wisdom being the wisest of all kings, you'd hope this one would be different. This nation, this empire, the power, the wealth, mixed with the worship of God. This should be it. And the king says, no. So as you begin to look at the history of the church then, have we dabbled as a church, as the Christian church dabbled with the idea that we could come up with an empire, that we could come up with a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, one that would live by God's rules? And how has it worked out in our history? If we go from David and Solomon, jump a few thousand years to the Holy Roman Empire, and jump a few thousand years to um, America? 
I promised a series to explore that, to look at the two churches at the end of time. As an end time people, we have never preached that, it, that the end time is the, the, the church against the world. It is a battle, and it is a final earthly battle of good versus evil, but it's never been the church against the world. It's been the church against what? The church against church. Two churches, a true one and a what? And a false one. The one who proclaims the good news of the beast, the one who has a gospel of the beast, and the one who proclaims the good news of the lamb that was slain. The old one and the brand new one. The church begins with two signs. Gilbert will give us Revelation 12, verse one. The first sign is a great portent or a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. The first sign is a, pre, is a prophetic description of the brand new church. The brand new church is described as a woman clothed completely with what? With light. By the way, clothed with all the earthly sources of light that there is, sun, moon, and stars. You don't get any brighter than this message. Carries the message that Jesus said, I am the what? I'm the light of the world. It's a brand new church. She carries all the light of this world. And the God that this church worships is described here also. Take a look at verse two and verse five. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. So all of a sudden now, the, 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 the scene shifts from what she's wearing to actually what's happening. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to what? Who is to rule. Interesting. Apparently, this child is the one that is going to be king, is the one that is going to be worshipped by this brand new church. He rules with a rod of iron, but her child was snatched away and taken to where? To God and to his throne. Wait a minute. The kid is headed where? Is headed to God's throne. Is this church really preaching that this kid could become the God that the church worships? A human God taken where? To God's throne. If you think about it, that is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the gospel in prophetic language, is it not? What about the second sign? Look at verse three. The second sign says there's another one. Another portent that appeared where? In heaven, same place. In other words, the same screen. Heaven is the screen on which John is viewing this vision. And this one appears in heaven also. Another sign appeared in heaven. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven, threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. My mother used to complain about our labor a lot. But at least she looked up over the drape 
There wasn't a red dragon with seven heads and, 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 and ten horns on each standing there. Talk about hard labor. But this other church's God looks very, if, if, if you're to describe, if you're just to describe in one word this sign in heaven, I would say that he looks pretty powerful, don't you? Very powerful. He's so powerful, he can disrupt a third of heaven. A third of heaven he disrupts with one sweep of his tail. Ten horns? In prophetic language, always remember that horn is power. How much power does he have? He's got ten of them. And on every one of those is seven crowns. He rules sevenfold on each one-tenth of that power. I'm not so sure that you find a, I, I guess, a more vivid description of power in all of Scripture outside of creation. But notice that all of that power is powerless when up against the child, which is interesting. All the power to disrupt heaven. One sweep of the tail, a third of the stars fall to the ground, and he finds his uh, defeat in this baby. He's powerless against the child. The child eludes him and ends up going where? Ends up going to the very throne of God. To what? To rule. So the woman has a pretty fantastic uh, gospel, does she not? A human God ruling where God was, is, and is to come. And from here on out will be described that way, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. The woman's got a pretty fantastic gospel, does she not? So Revelation 5 shows this story. It shows what happens. It's, it's this interlude. We heard what happened in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, if you look at the timeline, who's on the throne in Revelation 4? It's interesting that uh, when you read Revelation 4, you don't see him, do you? All John can describe is what? Is the throne itself. He has a very vivid description of the throne, doesn't he, Grady? What stones it's made of, the sounds coming out of it, but he never sees the one on the throne. He never describes the one on the throne. Very, very interesting. The one earthly human in the entire play, if you will, and he doesn't recognize the one on the throne. We know who's on the throne. Who's on the throne? The Father. This is Revelation 4, right? But what's interesting is that the fallen human in the story doesn't recognize him. He can't even describe him. He doesn't see him. You with me? Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And all of that worship is constant. It's constantly going on. Revelation 4 is completely constant. We hear praise. We hear, uh, we hear the word of God coming from the throne. But what's interesting is John doesn't understand it. He says, I hear voices. 
But he does recognize the song, the 24 elders, the other humans, if you will, in the story. They actually put it in human language and they are continuously saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Amen. And it's happening constantly. But unfortunately, in Revelation 5, it is ground to a halt. Something's happened. It's completely ground to a halt. It doesn't have a great start, Revelation 5. It's a crisis because that praise and worship that was constant has now grounded to a halt. I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Do you realize what's happened? The only one speaking is an angel, and she's got bad news, or he, or, or that angel, if you will. Who is worthy to what? To open the scroll. The singing has stopped. The elders have stopped. The voices from the throne have stopped. The four living creatures have stopped. The only voice heard in Revelation 5 is this angel. And the angel doesn't have good news. It's all been replaced by what the problem is. And apparently, this is a huge problem. There was a time, apparently, where all heavenly worship of God stopped. And it couldn't be started again by anybody who was on the scene. Because the angel says, who is what? Who's worthy? There's nobody there. Verse three says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even what? Even look into it. Nobody had the authority. Nobody was worthy to even look into whatever this scroll is. And that crisis has stopped all worship of God. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It affects John's very being. Remember, this is just a vision that he sees. I want you to note this, and this is very, I, at first this was very difficult for me to swallow because of what it, what it appears to say. But I think this right here is the entire, I, I, almost the entire ball of wax for you and me as a believing Christian. But I want you to notice that not even the Father seems to be able to open it. Who's on the throne? the one that John can't describe, right? God is on the throne, but he can't even open it. He's not the one. It's a problem that even God the Father doesn't seem to be able to solve if we're just looking at the vision itself. It's not clear why the book is so important. It's just a book, it's just a scroll, it's just sitting there. It's not clear why opening it is so crucial to everything in the universe. But the solution is to find somebody what? Worthy. The problem is, is that there's nobody worthy. And I'm just saying, oh, good for you. Siri found something for me. But Grady, Revelation 4 
was what we expect to be happening in heaven, right? God on his throne, always being worshiped. Revelation five, all worship is stopped and not even God himself is worthy to open the scroll. The solution is to find somebody what? Somebody worthy. The key word here is worthy. Search for the worthy person. Worthiness to be on the throne is at stake. It, worthiness is what they're looking for to solve this problem. It, back, in, in, back in chapter four, that's, that's what it said. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, and, uh, and they existed and were by your will. Hold on a second. The angel cried in Revelation 4, who is worthy? And, and, and the voice comes back saying, you're worthy. The creator is worthy. You created all things. And now all of a sudden, he's not even worthy enough to open the scroll. No one in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth is even able to look at it. There was an interlude right there, an interlude where worship stopped. The one on the throne is worthy, the creator is worthy, but for at least a minute in this prophetic vision, this interlude was he all of a sudden became unworthy. Why is he unworthy when it comes to the scroll? Is John saying, is the vision saying that not even the creator is enough? And it does if you remember who is looking at the vision and who the vision is given to. The vision's given to John the revelator. Is John an unfallen second Adam? He's a sinner. The interlude is that God's creation has separated themselves from him. And God has now deemed himself unworthy because he can't seem to reach them. He stands outside the bush, the creator stands outside the bush of the children that he created and loved and he howls and he shouts out, where are you? The interlude in prophetic time is us. The interlude is the fall. All heavenly worship stops until something can be done about the gap that is between us. Enter the Lamb. See, the interlude happens until something else happens, until they find somebody worthy. Look at verse five, back into chapter five and verse five. One of the elders said to me, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse five says something about his triumph. How was it that the lion of Judah triumphed? You'd think, well, uh, of course, he's a lion. That's how he triumphed. But hold on a second. Look at verse six. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been what? As if it had been slaughtered, as if it had been slain. Having seven horns. Where else did we see seven horns? Actually, in the dragon, you see ten Right? So he's even losing on the horns part, but <laughs> he, he wins in other places. He's the only one that is worthy. He has seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God being sent out where? To all the earth. This message right here is that worship will continue because of this lamb that was slain. 
It's interesting, it's very, very interesting. I'm not sure that we'll get into this being in Revelation 12, 13, and a couple of chapters after that as we move on in this series, but it's very, very interesting. It happens in a couple of places. He hears the Lion of Judah, but when he turns, he sees what? He sees a lamb that was slain. It's very, very interesting. Very, very interesting, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. You'd expect a lion to have power, but a lamb? And by the way, not a, not a healthy, uh, happy, uh, jumping around in the pasture lamb, one that's been what? One that's been gutted. One that's had its throat cut. The same kind of one that you would cut the throat and remove the, the insides and just throw it onto the altar. So in verse six, the lion become a lamb. And now you have the humanness, if you will, that the woman told us about. She was giving birth to a baby boy, a human. Now you have the humanness of Jesus. Look at what verse nine says. And when it happens in verse nine, they sing a what? They sing a new song, brand new song. You are worthy to open the scrolls, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. The, the worship goes from the creator who John can't seem to see, in other words, the, the creator that can't seem to reach the fallen creation, the song now changes. From you as creator are worthy, it now changes to you, the lamb, you are worthy. And why is he worthy? It's because he was what? It's because he was slain. That's what makes him worthy. All of a sudden now, John recognizes it. John sees it. You have to remember that by the time John sees this vision, he stood at the foot of the cross. I don't think that hit you quite right. John saw it, and now he sees what it caused. And he realizes that, yes, before Jesus, I didn't understand the Father. Before Jesus, I was afraid of the Father. But Jesus came to prove that he and the Father are what? He and the Father are one. And what makes him as worthy as the Father, maybe in this particular case, even more worthy than the Father, was that he was slain. For who? For us all the power of the creator and that's what he decides to do with the power is to give up his life. Greater love has no man than one who will lay down his life for his friends. They sing in full voice now. They're back to full voice. Worthy, worthy is what? Is the lamb. Verse 12 shows us the death of the lamb makes him worthy. First, his humanness, but second, his death. And I heard, and verse 13 says this, when I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
Don't get hung up. Don't get hung up that we have two of the personages of the Trinity vying for the same throne. That's not what John is trying to get across. What he's trying to get across was all the power of the creator of Revelation 4 is now contained, if you will, in this human form of this lamb that was slain in Revelation 5. The worthiness is transferred. The worthiness is earned. The worthiness is given to the son because he laid down his life for us. See, if he doesn't come and do something, that interlude stays. How good, how good, uh, how effective was the father before Jesus trying to reach out to fallen humanity? How effective was he in reaching us? Every time he showed up, we turn and what? We turn and run. If nothing else, the son makes the father accessible. Jesus said it himself in John. And by the way, it's it's no uh, accident that John has more insight in in his gospel into this than anybody else because he saw this, he he experienced it, and he preached it for 70 years before he writes it down because maybe it took him that long to try to get his mind around it himself that he and the father are one. Nobody understood. We are afraid of the Father. We are afraid of God. Just like every pagan that's afraid of all their gods. Israel was just as afraid of theirs. Grady can tell you that when we were going through the Gospel of John, we kind of had this watchword that, you know, when you prayed to God before Jesus, you didn't know what you were going to get, did you? You get the blessings of manna in the morning or you get a plague. And then Jesus shows up and he goes, I'm here to tell you one thing, that the Father has always loved you. And how do you know that? It's because I love you. See, he had to be human, he had to be divine, he had to die, this is what makes him worthy, this is what makes this unique combination, the only one that we can think of, the only one that we can see. How do we know that this lamb is the divine one on the throne? Well, there are hymns, there's actually five separate hymns, if you will, in in Revelation four and five. They're in verse eight, verse 11, in four, and in chapter five, they're in verse nine and 10 and 12 and 13. They're five separate hymns. Look at verse four, eight, and verse and, and, and 11. The four living creatures, the first one is, is singing to the one on the throne. So in, in, in Trinitarian parlance, who, is the, who are they singing to? The first one is singing to the Father. The first one is singing to the one that's on the throne. And they sing, they, uh, the, the four living creatures, each of them, six wings, full of eyes, all around and aside, day and night, without ceasing. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who is it that's on the throne? The Lord God Almighty. Verse 11 says, you are worthy, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So the first hymn is to the one on the throne. The second hymn is is, uh, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. This is the song to the Lamb. They sing a new song. What makes it new is that the worship is transferred from Lord God Almighty on the throne to the Lamb himself, and he says, you are worthy to take the scroll to open the seals. You were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. 
Verse 10 says, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. Verse 12 says, singing with full voice, they said, worthy is the what? Is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the final hymn, the fifth hymn, is singing to them both. Verse 13 says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might for how long? Forever and ever. See, the gospel is this, is that the power of the creator couldn't touch the fallen creation because there wasn't anything that could be done. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was nothing that could be done. So in the prophetic language, worship stops. The Father actually tells everyone who might be listening, okay, that worship from the rest of the fallen universe is not enough for me. As long as they're lost, I'm lost, and I won't even accept your worship. Worship stops. And you think, wait a minute, hold on a second. All-powerful creation of God? That's right. That all the power in all the universe, no greater power than the Father himself, no greater power, and he refuses to use it to save. What he decides to do is allow his love for those creatures to reach them. He takes all of his power, he puts it under, he puts it in love and decides to die for them rather than exercise some sort of power over the whole thing just so he can kickstart worship again. This is why it's a brand new song. No human God would ever do that. Human God would be absolutely satisfied with two-thirds. Well, I lost a third, I got two-thirds, I'm good. I have all the galaxies and all the universes, it's just this one stupid planet. God won't even accept worship from unfallen creatures as long as his fallen creatures are fallen. Hence, the lamb. The whole sequence moves to this climax right here. The lamb joins the father on the throne. It gets important in verse 13, the crescendo in the hymns. First, it's the four creatures. Second is the 24 elders. The third, it's both. Each case, the, the, each, each one, it gets louder and louder because it's joined then by myriads of angels. And in the fifth hymn, every creature in the universe is buying into that song. Notice, even people that haven't been resurrected yet, they are singing the song above the earth, below the earth. By the way, that's you and me. And note that it's a brand new song. Because there's never been anybody like the Lamb. There's never been anything like the Lamb. The climax puts the Lamb on the throne with the Father. 
The major points of Revelation four and five is that the lamb takes equal status with the father. The lamb kickstarts the worship again. The lamb provides the bridge to the fallen children. And once that bridge is provided, worship then begins again. And every creature then can join in the worship. God was not satisfied with all of heaven and all of, of every unfallen world worshiping him because we couldn't. He stopped it. He put it into it. For about 3,000 years. In the vision, it's an interlude, right? But if you think about it, from the fall to the cross, four, maybe five. The Father says, if my children can't worship, no one does. And so notice what he does with the power. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, 24 elders, he goes and he takes the right hand from the scroll, for the scroll from the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne. And when he's taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fall before the lamb and each holding a harp of golden bowls and full of incense. In the, in, in, in the first hymn in, in chapter four, they all fall at his feet. In chapter five, once the lamb takes the scroll, all of them fall at his feet. By the way, it's a status he clearly had beforehand. Revelation 1 is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And now after Jesus' death, an acclamation of the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Lamb. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. So again, what makes him worthy is his death. What he's willing to do See, the most natural reading of Revelation 5 is that the cross and the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus at God's right hand happens because of the cross and the resurrection. I loved when we were in Hebrews last year and, and we got to chapter 10 and, and talking about that high priest, that, that, that single high priest, that, that one that, that comes, that heavenly high priest that, that worships in the, in the sanctuary not made with human hands. In verse 12, uh, in Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The high priest sat down. By the way, it's the exact word and tense of the lamb. It's the exact same word and tense of the lamb taking the scroll. When Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, he assumed the authority of the king that's enthroned. Revelation 5 is Jesus' coronation as king of kings, lord of lords. And it doesn't happen until after the cross, after the resurrection, after he lays down his life for you and me to assure that we could sing that song forever. The worthiness of this lamb is crucial for the rest of the book of Revelation. The worthiness of this lamb is crucial for the gospel that is being preached by that woman clothed in the sun with a crown of stars and standing on the moon. Think about it. 
If the lamb isn't worthy, why are we here on a Saturday morning? Amen? Why are we still worshiping after the three years that we've had? Why are we still worshiping after the, the thousands of years that we've had? It's because somewhere deep down we're reminded every day that the lamb is worthy. So what's required is faith of this, something we've never seen. This is something that has never happened before. It will never happen again. Creation, the creator became creation. Why? Just to be with us. Not for 33 years, but forever. Why? Only one reason, because he loves us. Jesus is the most definitive statement made about humanity, fallen and unfallen. Desire of Ages has this beautiful statement. It says, Satan's purpose is to bring about an eternal separation between God and man, but in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. We're bound to God for all eternity. If an angel ever wants to ask us in the kingdom, how do you know God loves you? All you have to do is point at Jesus because he's still walking around in one of these bodies. By the way, an angel knows that, so they're not gonna ask that. They may ask you how it feels, and I'm gonna be happy to tell them. Fully man, fully God. There's no one like the Lamb. There's no song like this. It may be 2,000 years old, but it's brand new. So remember what Paul says about this Lamb when we start talking about power. Now, I just want to make the transition now that we know this, we're going to have to move on. In the, in the series, but remember this about the power of the creator and what he's willing to do with it. Paul in Romans five says this, he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. The best humanity can do is to die for a righteous person. That's the best we can do. I'll die for Grady, he's a nice guy. Maybe, maybe. But die for an enemy? No. Perhaps a good person, someone might actually die for, Paul says. But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we'll be saved by, through him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, having been what? Reconciled, brought back together with God. The interlude completely over we will be saved by his life. There's nobody like this. To sing a new song, to believe, even when you don't feel like it. The pain, the sorrow, the death that we experience day to day and especially have experienced, we don't have to feel like it. But I believe that there is something about the will to go on just a little bit because he is worthy. And he is worthy because he was slain. 
and all the power of creation is not what made us worthy to him. All the power of creation is, is not brought into play. It's not placed over. All the power of creation was completely surrendered so that he would come and die for us. So remember this as we go on. Remember the fundamental difference of the use of power by the God that the church of the lamb worships and by the God of the church of the beast worships. The fundamental definition and use of that power. Because the God of the church of this woman is the one carrying the worthiness, if you will, to worship him. Not because he exercised that power but by emptying himself of that power. And because he is sitting at the right hand of God today, you and I can keep coming back and singing the song. Worthy, worthy is the lamb. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. We're not gonna be able to to get into it much, but the seven churches, <clears throat> the, the entire scope and history of the Christian church placed in these, in these visions, in these letters, not letters, but in these exhortations that Jesus gives. One thing that, that we notice is that we've talked about, we're gonna talk about false worship. We're gonna talk about false churches and the church of the beast and, and how the church of God became perverted, you know, if you will, at these various times in history and we know uh, is happening now and, could, and will continue to happen in the future. One thing that I noticed though is that he shows up at the beginning of the vision. He walks amongst the lampstands and even as the church gets to its absolute worst, the absolute worst that it could get, where the church really doesn't care about anybody or anything anymore in Laodicea. I'm rich and have need of nothing. One thing that I've noticed is that yes, we have locked Jesus outside the door, but notice Jesus is outside the door. He didn't walk away. And in the seven seals is the same thing. The very first uh, horse in the seven seals is the rider, the the rider on the white horse. And the rider on the white horse says, God says that he rides and he continues to conquer. He conquers and continues to conquer until there's nothing left to conquer. In other words, no matter how bad it gets, the rider is still on the horse. He's still riding through the, through the, uh, the vision, if you will. He's still riding through all of human history. And by the way, he, he, uh, he, he does it so good and so much that, that what comes next is that he comes back. with me? Because we're gonna go into some pretty dark places. We're gonna have to look in the mirror a few times and then ask the question of where we are now. And I just want us to remember and we can't do anything to make him leave. Although we've tried for 2,000 years, even though we've locked the door, closed the door and locked a door that could not be closed or locked, according to Philadelphia, and we managed to do it. He won't go away. Worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Thanks for holding on with me. I really appreciate it. This was probably three sermons that 
that I wanted to put, I want to get going, I want to get started, but we can't, we can't go any further without knowing this. So thanks for riding the ride with me. <laughs>